Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. Happy uh, Christmas Eve uh, to all of you, wherever you um, may live in the world. Uh, for some of you, it already might be a Christmas Eve night. Um, I know where I'm at. It's still daylight, uh, early afternoon, so I'm uh, certainly taking advantage of the time that I have before um, the big day comes tomorrow. But then again, it is hard to believe that tomorrow will be Christmas Day. I don't know where all the time has gone, but I do know that um, the older I get, time moves a lot faster. And unfortunately, I don't have control over it. But what I do have control over is knowing that I can still make the most of the time that, um, that I have to be able to do the things that I want to do on a daily basis, um, which is the most important thing. And one of those things, if it's not done daily, it's done once every um, couple of days, and that is to podcast. Podcast, what I like to share with you all being um, not just historic events, but uh, historic people who have played significant roles um, in America. Well, here we are again uh, discussing Harlow Giles Unger's Thomas Paine and the Clarion Call for American Independence. Uh, when I was on the air uh, last, um, we certainly learned a great deal about Thomas Paine's uh, childhood. We especially um, found out that he was the only surviving child that made it past infancy in his um, household. We also uh, learned that he uh, took on um, his uh, father's um, stay-making profession. He, in other words, he was apprenticed to his father. We learned that uh, Thomas did attend school at a time when it was not uh, considered even to be um, a mandatory law for children to do so in terms of attending school. But we also uh, learned that um, he was not of the uh, upper gentry uh, ranking in society, but uh, his family, like so many others in Tetford, were dependent upon um, uh, small plots of land for farming purposes to ensure that their um, provisions, or I should say um, essentials for uh, providing food for the greater family were met, considering that the Duke of Grafton pretty much uh, controlled the whole show in terms of restricting what uh, people could and could not read, uh, to restricting what preachers could and could not preach. I mean, the Duke of Grafton is not the king, but obviously the Duke of Grafton had a lot of unlimited um, powers that perhaps in the eyes of young Thomas Paine could have been viewed as a violation of um, improper checks and balances where where the government pretty much was allowing um, the nobility to uh, pretty much dictate what the people below in the greater communities could and could not do. So in this uh, podcast episode, we're going to be uh, discussing how Thomas Paine will make a new life for himself. And what do I mean by a new life for himself? Is he making a career switch? To an extent, yes, but what I mean by starting a new life, folks, is that he could possibly be um, wanting to um, go to another country where there are more um, opportunities for um, economic success. There might be more opportunities for him to make a name for himself and perhaps opportunities where he can meet um, people, not just from all walks of life, but meet people who will go on to play uh, prominent, fig prominent um, roles in a country where um, 
people have been settling since 1607. Am I getting somewhere, folks? I hope so. So our first leadoff question will have us at, a, at the time frame of uh, 1767. So by 1767, Thomas Paine is already 30 years old. And it's fair to say that, um, like I said, he is the miracle child that, that his parents, um, not so much that his parents wanted, but the miracle child who has survived infancy. I mean, to have made it to 30 years old, I mean, that's, that's remarkable considering that most children usually were not making it past the age of 10. So by 1767, Thomas Paine is 30 years old. And two years earlier, uh, remember from the previous podcast about the uh, passage of that infamous Stamp Act that uh, enraged the colonists uh, 3,000 miles across the ocean in America, but it also um, had a, um, a bit of a negative impact on uh, people in England, uh, many of for whom were uh, sent to debtors' prisons for not being able to pay um, outstanding debts. Thomas Paine, as we know, um, could have gone to debtor's prison himself, but thank heavens he had enough um, household accessories that he was able to sell. And, um, and, and by selling those uh, possessions, I'm sure some of those possessions were probably very hard to part with, but it was either sell the possessions or by, fa by not selling those possessions, land up in debtor's prison. So... Thank heavens he had enough uh, resources um, in terms of, rather I should say, uh, materials, uh, possessions to sell to avoid um, having to go down the inevitable road of um, debtor's prison. But 1767 um, is not going to be a pleasant year, not just 3,000 miles across the ocean in America, but even uh, for, for Thomas Paine in England, not just Thomas Paine himself, but probably a handful of other um, Englishmen and um, England, you know, a year before Parliament had finally had enough common sense to repeal the Stamp Act. But just when everybody is rejoicing, and of course they were most notably in Boston, Massachusetts, they were having, uh, from the last book we discussed of Harlow Giles Unger's American Tempest, how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution, we learned that uh, many uh, prominent men um, hosted parties, like John Hancock, um, celebrating the fact that Parliament had finally woken up and realized that they needed to have some common sense in terms of how um, they ought to be governing their subjects 3,000 miles across the ocean. So in other words, we're finally realizing maybe at this point that Parliament is getting some common sense and realizing that, hey, it's one thing to pass legislation, but if we're passing legislation without the consent of the governed, then how can our relationship with those below us be um, compatible? Well, just when we think uh, Parliament is uh, growing up, um, I hate to say this, uh, Parliament is going um, 10 steps backwards. Why 10 steps backwards? Well, Parliament does pass a piece of legislation in 17, 1767 that even Thomas Paine himself strongly opposes. What is that act, folks? I think for those of you who were with me on the last uh, series of uh, American Tempest, you all probably would know which one that is. Would it be the, the Quartering Act or the Townshend Revenue Act, or what was called the Townshend Duties? How about the Townshend uh, Revenue Acts? 
for a 101 response, why did Thomas Paine um, oppose the Townshend uh, Revenue Acts? He viewed the legislation as unfair given that the colonists 3,000 miles across the ocean were not provided with any proper means of advanced consent or notice prior to the law itself going into effect. So you have to remember that, um, you know, it's one thing for Parliament to pass legislation, but our subjects, being the colonists 3,000 miles across the ocean, are not going to receive a breaking news alert the same day that legislation goes into effect or the same day that legislation itself gets passed and then realizing, okay, this will go into effect a couple months later. Uh, many in um, America found out um, in September of 1767, about two months after the Townshend duties were enacted, that's when many in America started learning about the legislation through their um, newspapers. So think about it. Two months earlier, legislation gets passed, and then all of a sudden, wait a minute, Parliament's throwing us another curveball here. They're not... Um, they're not even thinking about us. They just want to just tax us. They want to impose duties upon us because they claim to be in desperate need of revenue. And I'll get to that here in a moment. But if they're going to keep doing these kinds of practices without our consent, then how can our then how can we as colonists have meaningful relationship with the mother country? So it's a double-edged sword. The more legislation Parliament passed the greater the levels of unrest taking place 3,000 miles across the ocean. Wouldn't that make sense, folks? The more legislation that gets passed, the greater the levels of unrest that will result. Of course, when I think of unrest in colonial America, uh, political unrest, that is, if there's one city that comes to my mind, it's Boston, Massachusetts. Is it fair to say that even Boston, Massachusetts itself was the uh, birthplace or the cradle for where American independence uh, was born. Absolutely. Now, many of you all are wondering, though, why is Parliament passing this legislation? I mean, for those of you who were with me on the previous uh, book series, you all would know, but if, for some of you who are new and aren't sure why Parliament was passing the, these um, pieces of legislation, like the... Um, Stamp Act, uh, the Townshend Duties, the Declaratory Act from, um, from around the same time as the Townshend Duties. The reason why Parliament is passing these um, pieces of legislation is that Parliament is more concerned about enacting legislation that is going to help raise revenue to reduce the existing debts from the Seven Years' War, a.k.a. the French and Indian War. And remember, uh, folks, Britain's about 145 million pounds in debt. Colonial America is only about a million pounds in debt. But there, I mean, that's a huge difference between only being a million pounds in debt versus 145 million pounds. So if you are um, in Parliament, or the British government, you don't have time to fool around. You've got to, um, you've got to get the ball rolling and start enacting legislation and if it's going to upset the people 3,000 miles away, then in your eyes, you might as well just say, well, you know what? It's their problem, not ours. And why so? Because who's protecting the colonists along the frontier? 
the British military. I mean, yes, we've you know, French and Indian War. You know, we're trying to keep out the Indians from raiding uh, the frontier um, territory that is right on the boundary between what is still considered Appalachian Mountains and just west of the Appalachians. And by, um, how do I say it, by getting, uh, by, by raising money that would help um, protect um, the frontier, do you think it's fair to say at the same time that the concerns that Thomas Paine um, is trying to address to Parliament, do you think those concerns are going to be um, placed with the same value like the ones that took place with the Stamp Act and the Townshend duties? Remember what Thomas Paine was um, very um, concerned about, and he wrote in that article uh, that I mentioned um, from the uh, previous night. It was um, He wrote the article in the summer of 1772. It was called The Case of the Officers of Excise. The article itself demanded for Parliament to push for better pay to improve better working conditions for um, all excisemen. Of course, we have to remember that excisemen often had to engage in what's called uh, stamping. In other words, they had to um, they had to pretty much come up with their own um, their own um, numbers that would uh, tell them just how much um, ale had been depleted from barrels from one month after the other. Stamping was almost like another form of uh, taking a bribe. In other words, excisemen did not have a, have a nice job if they challenged the authorities of the uh, brewmasters or let alone those in a brewery they often were met with violence and death so for thomas paine you know he he wants excisemen he wants excisemen to be safe well don't you think anybody in their work environment should be safe sure so Parliament, sadly, has no interest in Thomas Paine's request for better pay to improve working conditions regarding England's excisemen. Will that turn Thomas Paine off? Yes. If I was in Thomas Paine's shoes and I tried to persuade Parliament to uh, look into um, enacting uh, legislation that would help improve uh, the working conditions for England's excisemen and Parliament denied my request, would I be ticked off? Yes. Of course, I know I would probably want to be careful about how to uh, exercise my emotions about it. But at the same time, it would tell me right away that, hey, look, yes, England is the mightiest power in the world. There's no doubt about that. But where should her priorities center on? Well, when you are the mightiest empire in the world, you can't revolve all your priorities on one matter. Think about this. England's got 13 colonies in colonial America that will one day become 13 states. And, um, you know, one of the colonies being Virginia is the largest of all the colonies. You know, Virginia's territory goes all the way to the uh, Great Lakes and to the north, what we now know as the Northwest Territory, what would become the states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin. I've said it before many of times, and I'll say it again, that Virginia has would have the most to gain, but yet the most to lose. So protecting the uh, frontiers, the frontier boundaries for Parliament, that's a big deal. Is it fair to say that Parliament is concerned about national security? Absolutely. They're hoping that now that they've come away, England's come away as the victor from the Seven Years' War, that there can be a return to normalcy. 
But remember from American Tempest that the return that that um, entering into a state of normalcy was not meant to be for everybody, because isn't wasn't it fair to say that uh, for the economy in New England, that their economy revolved around war, and the goods that were produced revolved around um, times of war when when they knew war was inevitable. You've got goods now that are no longer in demand. So they're just going to sit there and, and probably rot. So for many of, of our um, of parliaments or the crown subjects in colonial America, normalcy is not going to automatically mean that, um, that we can just sit back and live happily ever after knowing that, um, that we've won the Seven Years' War and we've got nothing really else to worry about. Wishful thinking. All right, well, let's pay attention to this question here because now we're going to get into uh, the heart of this uh, podcast's uh, primary um, focal point. And, it, and of course, it will still involve Thomas Paine, but what we're going to get at here is how Thomas Paine is going to make the next big move. So let's uh, pay attention uh, carefully here. In the early 1770s, what American was currently serving as the postmaster general, but he was serving in this position overseas in England. I'll give you a couple of choices. Was it choice A, Charles Lee? Choice B, Henry Lawrence? Choice C, Benjamin Franklin? Or choice D, Alexander Hamilton? The answer is choice C, Benjamin Franklin. And if I'm not mistaken, isn't Benjamin Franklin the oldest of our forefathers? Yes. So therefore, he is much older than George Washington. He is much older than Thomas Jefferson. As a matter of fact, does anybody want to take a guess at what year Benjamin Franklin was born? I'll give you a, a period range. Was he born, uh, the uh, decade would be between 1700 and 1710. Does anybody want to take a guess at what year between that time slot? The answer is 1706. Think about that, folks. 1706. So when he was born, Virginia's capital, which relocated from Jamestown to Williamsburg in 1699, was really about close to eight years old. So think about when Benjamin Franklin is born in 1706. He's born in Boston, Massachusetts. Think about the history right there onto itself. And believe it or not, there is not a King George ruling um, England in, in 1706. I believe it was uh, Queen Anne. And the only reason I know that is because uh, there have been times when my wife and I have gone to Williamsburg. And when we've been in the courthouse, they won't. there have been times where they have not said, God save the king. They have said, God save the queen, being Queen Anne. So anyways, yes, in the early 1770s, Benjamin Franklin is currently serving as the Postmaster General in England, but he is also holding another position in that he is the agent in London for the colonies of Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Georgia. And I tell you, Georgia is the furthest of the 13 colonies, but yet he is an agent for that colony. I, I find it very uh, unique considering that you know, Massachusetts is the furthest, uh, well, New Hampshire is the furthest uh, of the 13 colonies to the north, but, you know, Massachusetts is there too. But then Pennsylvania and New Jersey being the middle colonies, you know, they, they're next to one another. 
Um, so think about it. He's got some good diversity here in terms of um, being an agent in London for uh, four colonies. One north, two in the middle, and one in the uh, lower south. Benjamin Franklin did not, even though he is our postmaster general and he is an agent in London, he did not hold the, an official title or post known as diplomat. But while in England, he was serving as the acting, or I should say the interim ambassador for all 13 colonies. I think that's appropriate. I mean, think about it. Benjamin Franklin, he's a very, very well-knowledgeable man, and he could come, I mean, anybody could come to him for advice on an assortment of matters, not just political, but scientific. Uh, Benjamin Franklin is one of those, uh, we call him a, a renaissance individual. And uh, when my wife and I were in Philadelphia over the summer, uh, we went to uh, the Benjamin Franklin Museum, and that was very well worth uh, visiting. And uh, he truly uh, is credited for so many things that have often been overlooked. Uh, for example, he was he is responsible for for um, establishing uh, America's first fire department. He was also responsible for, establish, for establishing what's called the, um, the Farmer's Almanac. He's also responsible for uh, creating bifocals, just to name a few of his uh, many unique accomplishments. So yes, it is fair to say that Benjamin Franklin is serving as the interim ambassador for all 13 colonies, but Prior to the start of the 1770s, it could be fair to say that Benjamin Franklin is actually more moderate. In other words, he is showing he is showing empathy. In other words, he does not believe that the uh, measures that Parliament has passed, like the Stamp Act and the Townshend duties, he does see it as a um, improper um, practice where. Um, not an, an unfair practice where improper consent, um, where consent itself had not been um, uh, doled out in a uh, proper manner. However, Franklin is probably not one of those um, individuals who believes that violence is the solution to problems. So in other words, Benjamin Franklin would be the exact opposite of Samuel Adams. However, there will be an incident that does change uh, Benjamin Franklin's uh, political stances, to where he will become, to where he will uh, start um, siding with the uh, colonists um, on a more frequent basis. What incident do you think uh, took place that um, that led him to uh, side more? That led him to start beginning um, siding more frequently with the uh, colonists. How about the incident that happened on March the 5th of 1770, a.k.a. the Boston Massacre? In the aftermath of the uh, Boston Massacre incident, Benjamin Franklin began to have a change of heart. I mean, Benjamin Franklin uh, knows for himself that Boston is a hotbed of violence. Is it fair to say that Benjamin Franklin did not um, advocate um, violence as a result of what uh, of the outcomes that happened that night but it might also but we should probably also point out too that both parties were at um, equal fault for what took place on that night but it is fair to say that uh, for Benjamin Franklin um, that the loss of life is something that um, 
that the loss of life by means of violence is something that um, is unspeakable, unfathomable. And I've said it before from other uh, book series that uh, when the Boston Massacre incident took place, I mean, prior to March 5th, 1770, you didn't hear of mass shootings. You didn't hear of five and seven people dying in one night from gun violence. But when five people died from a means of violence, like what happened on the night of uh, March 5th, and and we should also point out that violence was occurring in the streets of Boston within the three to four days previously before the 5th, and then when 11-year-old Christopher Sider was shot by um, by uh, Boston's um, customs housekeeper, uh, who was a loyalist, being Ebenezer Richardson, who shot 11-year-old Christopher Sider two weeks before. Um, all of that, yes, um, when, it, when someone or a group of people died from violence, that was a big deal. But in today's time, as we all know, sadly, that has become a... Um, a customary norm. It doesn't make it right, but it just goes to show just how um, how drastic the times have uh, changed in um, in the world. When you consider um, how um, societies have um, evolved over the last two hundred and fifty some years. So for Benjamin Franklin, he decides that it would be best to start publishing articles in London's public advertiser and in other newspapers in London expressing um, his displeasure on an assortment of matters in terms of how uh, Britain has treated her subjects 3,000 miles across the ocean. There was one article in particular that he wrote uh, which denounced Britain's governing tactics in colonial America. The article... um, that was published by Franklin ultimately led to Parliament's firing him from the postmaster general position. You know, it's one thing to speak your mind, but at the same time, you never know when it could uh, result in losing your job. But you have to remember, too, uh, by the early 1770s, folks, Benjamin Franklin's in his mid-60s. And, you know, yes, you know, he's he's, he's working, but he's working because he knows that it's... um, a noble thing to do by serving your country. But I don't think Benjamin Franklin's going to be um, severely impacted um, by his being dismissed because he's got plenty of connections. So he's not going to be uh, unemployed for a long time. But uh, what incident finally propelled Parliament in December of 1773 to dismiss Benjamin Franklin altogether? Well, December 1773, folks, uh, didn't we uh, talk about in our last podcast series about the Boston Tea Party? And didn't we talk about um, the uh, East India Tea? Didn't we discuss how about seven dozen men constructively, and what I mean by constructively, meaning they didn't do it in a nonviolent manner, but seven dozen men at best went aboard uh, three ships, the Beaver, the Eleanor, the Dartmouth, and they disguised themselves as Indians. They went about dumping all 342 tea chests from those three ships into Boston Bay, which would have resulted in, in today's time, about a million dollars of lost revenue. But Benjamin Franklin takes matters into his own hands by defending the actions of the Bostonians whom uh, participated in the events from December 16th of 1773. 
So he is actually doing this on the king's own soil, meaning right in England. Shoot, I mean, I don't know if it would have been an issue 3,000 miles across the ocean back in colonial America to voice, to stand up um, to the people who took part in those actions, but he's doing it on the king's own soil right in England. And that will cause a lot of um, people loyal to the crown, not just in England, but loyal to um, to the monarch and to uh, parliament and just loyal to, um, to England's um, means of governing in terms of her empire. They will see that as something that is uh, traitorous or um, just downright uh, treasonous. So, do you think that um, Thomas Paine will meet Benjamin Franklin before Benjamin Franklin decides that, hey, it's time to go back to America? Do any of you all think that there is a, there's a strong likelihood that Thomas Paine and Benjamin Franklin are going to meet? They do. They do meet one another, but neither man, folks, ever revealed how, when, and where they got formally introduced to one another. So is it fair to say that maybe a third party uh, or some people that would have called themselves third party uh, individuals could have been the ones that uh, introduced uh, Thomas Paine um, and Benjamin Franklin to one another? Perhaps so. And when these two did meet, it was, um, it was a very productive meeting and it was one that was and truly meant to be, to say the least. Thomas Paine... Um, showed Benjamin Franklin his, um, his works of writing, whether it was from poetry. And yes, Paine did uh, dabble in poetry and uh, from works uh, that he had done, say like the one from 1772 about the, with the excisemen and other um, small um, entry-level uh, writings. But these works were so, um, what do you call it, were so impressive to Benjamin Franklin that obviously an instant liking was beyond inevitable. So whoever um, arranged the two of them uh, to meet with one another, um, that, the, that person or persons were the right uh, people at the right place and right time. Did Thomas Paine uh, turn to Benjamin Franklin in seeking a better life? And what I mean, folks, by a better life, that is, um, better work opportunities, uh, a, better, um, a better opportunity to uh, go somewhere and start a new uh, life where there would be more um, hope in terms of um, making a name for yourself, um, whether you're a businessman or a writer, something that would um, give you the ability to um, gain a better uh, reputation, a better image, um, greater stature. Yes. So, yes, Thomas Paine did turn to Benjamin Franklin with regards to requesting a passage to America. So, Benjamin Franklin agrees to become Thomas Paine's sponsor, which included overseeing Paine's voyage from England to America, along with providing him letters of introduction to well-known Americans whom could assist in getting pain established on American soil. So yes, Thomas, so yes, Benjamin Franklin's going to uh, sponsor Thomas Paine's um, voyage, but in order to ensure that not only the voyage goes smooth, but once Thomas Paine 
comes onto American soil, he's going to have um, some letters of introduction. He's going to have something. He's going to have some stuff with him. So this way, he, he's not going to be thumbing around saying, oh, I need a ride to the next to the next available tavern for lodging purposes. No. Benjamin Franklin will have written letters ahead of time saying, hey, I'm sponsoring an individual by the name of Thomas Paine who is going to be coming uh, to America. Of course, America's 13 colonies, folks. So, you know, when, when I think of the cities during this time that are the prominent cities to the north is Boston. You know, then you might have Portsmouth, New Hampshire. You've got New York, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, you know, in Virginia, you've got Yorktown, Virginia is a, a thriving port town. Alexandria is to the north. Uh, then you've got Wilmington, North Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, Charleston, South Carolina to the south. So, you know, Franklin's sponsoring uh, Payne's voyage. So we all, we're all wondering, hey, where is Thomas Payne going to go? I mean, it's not like he can uh, choose his own. Um, it's not like he can choose his own city and say, this is where I want to live. No, it's all about where the connections lie. And for all we know, most of Benjamin Franklin's connections, is it fair to say that the majority of his connections are going to be in Pennsylvania and New Jersey? Yes. There could be some connections in Massachusetts, but most notably in uh, Philadelphia and in uh, certain uh, various places in New Jersey. So what's unique about November 30th, 1774? Thomas Paine arrived into Philadelphia after a nine-week voyage on the treacherous waters of the Atlantic Ocean. Nine weeks, folks. Do you suspect Thomas Paine's, uh, the ship he was on, was um, a top-of-the-line uh, vessel? No. Uh, so let's be realistic. There's no Royal Caribbean Cruise Line ships during this time. But it's fair to say that the vessel he was on was the, pretty much like a cargo vessel. Think about it, people. When um, Think about it, folks, rather, I should say. When people are traveling from Europe to America or America to Europe, they're not traveling on uh, top-of-the-line uh, boats. I mean, the boats they're traveling on are average Joe boats, but they are primarily designed for cargo purposes. So wherever you get assigned to sleep... That's you pretty much have no other choice. If you don't like it, then I guess you, they may have no other choice but to throw you overboard. But one thing I do know, uh, it's interesting about uh, traveling across the ocean during this time, is that Thomas Jefferson firmly believed that in order to, um, in order for someone to go across the ocean, they would want to be on a boat that was less than five years old. He firmly believed that anything over five years old in terms of vessel represented um, more of a liability. But he felt, he always believed that the vessel itself that one would board needed to have already had one successful, successful voyage over to Europe and one back over to America. And of course, we have to remember too that many of our forefathers would have had to have relied upon um, the uh, stars and uh, the phases of the moon to ensure that when they um, departed America via uh, boat, that um, that the waters were safe, that the tides were right, 
I mean, all of what we don't realize is that our forefathers were very dependent upon. Um, a, they were dependent upon um, astronomy in terms of how they could go about uh, determining um, the sky and the stars and the phases of the moon for um, for daily tasks, but also when it came to us uh, sailing across the waters. But no, it, it truly is a miracle that Thomas Paine's even alive. The voyage was so bad, folks, that five people died from typhoid fever. And even Payne himself felt ill along the voyage. So for all we know, he could have been exposed to one, to some of these five people who ended up dying from typhoid fever. Why he survived, I don't know, but I can say that it is a miracle that he did. So we should be reminded of the fact that when you traveled overseas to Europe or people coming from Europe to America, there was no guarantee that everybody coming over would survive. Payne himself lived with the great fear, not knowing whether he would live to see America's shores. Well, if I was in his shoes, I'd probably say the same thing as well. So once he um, has, has safely arrived, and I want to say this was either by uh, late 1774 or around the start of 1775, he uh, becomes um, an official citizen of uh, Pennsylvania. So, you know, here he is publishing articles. He was publishing articles in England. Is it fair to say that he wants to continue doing what he was doing in England, but except take things to a different level? Sure. You know, it's one thing to be a writer, but can writers themselves be editors as well? Yes. If you're a writer, I mean, you've got a lot of opportunities. So, when Thomas Paine comes to... Uh, Pennsylvania, or I should say Philadelphia, do you think he's going to open up his own business right away? No. However, he's going to meet someone whom is going to um, help him get on the right foot, and within a short period of time, bigger things are going to um, happen. Let's, let's ask, I'm going to ask you all this question, who is Robert Aitken? Aitken is spelled A-I-T-K-E-N. Does anybody take, want to know who Robert Aitken is? He is a Philadelphia printer whom came to America in 1769, just five years before Payne himself did. Robert Aitken is from Scotland, but he started out in 1769 as a bookseller. And by 1775, he began establishing a magazine that would become known as the American Magazine. Why the American Magazine? Because the American Magazine will focus all of its attention on information that derives from the colonies. So in other words, the magazine itself will have news that could come as far south as Savannah, Georgia, news as far north as Portsmouth, New Hampshire, or Boston, Massachusetts. But the magazine itself is not going to have anything that pertains to what is going on 3,000 miles away in London, England. So the American magazine would eventually become known as the Pennsylvania magazine. Now, you know, when I think of magazines, you know, I think of National Geographic. I mean, I subscribe to a few magazines like Williamsburg's Trend and Tradition, 
which is a quarterly magazine. I also subscribe to other quarterly magazines like uh, Monticello and uh, Jamestown Yorktown Foundation. But prior to Thomas Paine coming to America, had there been other attempts to establish uh, magazines in the colonies? Yes. How many magazines do you all think had been established in the colonies prior to Thomas Paine's arrival? The number is between 15 and 20. Anybody want to take a guess at what the uh, correct number is between that range of 15 and 20? The answer is 16. 16 magazines had been established in the colonies, and each one resulted with failure. Man, that's tough. 16 tries. Well, I'm going to ask you all this question here. Why do you think there had been so much failure with these magazines? Was it because there was not enough subscribers? That is a possibility. But when you are running a printing shop, don't you need more than one person running a printing shop? You might need at least, depending on how big the printing shop is, you might need maybe three or five people at best, depending on just how big it is. So Robert Aitken, folks... He's doing, he's doing, I guess, mediocre, about average, but he's getting overwhelmed. And by being overwhelmed, would, is, it, is it fair to say that he needs um, assistance? Not just temporary assistance, folks. He needs permanent assistance. So therefore, he's going to seek out an editor. And who, whom exactly will that editor be that uh, Robert Aitken takes on? Thomas Paine. So by January of 1775, Thomas Paine has already wrote two pieces in the Pennsylvania Magazine's introductory issue. Okay, so that's off. he's off to a good start. What's even better is that next month, in February 1775, he, Paine himself becomes the magazine's official editor. Thanks to Thomas Paine's leadership, the Pennsylvania Magazine's membership rapidly expands which meant also reinventing topic discussions. When Robert Aitken was running the magazine, there were um, topics to discuss, but nothing political was mentioned. When Thomas Paine takes over, the opposite happens. Is it, is it a good thing to have political discussions? Yes, especially if it involves liberty, independence. Hey folks, 1775... You know, the year before we had the First Continental Congress, come May of 1775, the Second Continental Congress plans on meeting if resolutions that, uh, that had been adopted from the First Continental Congress the year before, if those resolutions were not met by Britain, then yes, a Second Continental Congress will convene in Philadelphia. And so therefore, having, a, having the Pennsylvania Magazine around to have political discussions that that uh, bear resemblance to what could be discussed behind closed doors in um, Independence Hall. Yeah, I, I see a lot of uh, similarities there, folks. So yes, these discussions that will be mentioned in the uh, Pennsylvania Magazine on Liberty and Independence are, are relevant because these are matters that are not going away. In Thomas Paine's eyes, he knows they're not going away. Even people in Massachusetts like Samuel Adams, Paul Revere, 
Dr. Joseph Warren, John Adams, John Hancock, they know that this isn't going away. Well, you know, to have been an author in this time was very unique. But it was also one where um, you also knew that you had to be very careful. How so? Well, let me ask you this question. Did many authors or, um, or writers go about um, writing articles using their own personal, or I should say real names? No. And there's a good, there are good reasons for why they didn't, folks. Many authors preferred signing their articles using pseudonyms, or what we refer to as fictitious names. By uh, writing articles under a pseudonym, the writer, or author rather, I should say, not only protected his own identity, but he also went about ensuring that character defamation suits would become more difficult to prosecute. You know, another word for defamation is like libel, you know, making, um, what do you call it, um, remarks that about someone else that, for one, are not true, but can be uh, damaging to where their reputation is ruined. So, authors writing under pseudonyms face less likelihood of risking being injured to facing death. So, hey, if you want to write an article, you've got a right to do it. But if you don't want people coming after you, then you're better off writing under a pseudonym name. Because once you've, once you've written your actual name, like John Smith or Jane Doe, on the actual paper, let's say I am John Smith and I write my full name on the article, yes, I might have people praising me for what I wrote, but I, but I can tell you this right now, I will get a barrage of people who will probably be uh, coming after me and saying, how dare you write this? Because we don't b believe in what you've said, and we find it to be so untrue that we don't want to have anything to do with you. So think about it, folks. That, yes, if you want to protect your identity, you, you use a pseudonym. This way you run the risk, you, you minimize all of your risks in every way there is possible. Did membership increase dramatically in the aftermath of Thomas Paine's becoming the editor to the Pennsylvania Magazine? Yes. Prior to his coming aboard, the Pennsylvania Magazine had well below 1,000 subscribers. I don't even know if it got to 500 at best, but it, it was just, it was struggling, and I think it's fair to say because Robert Aitken was overwhelmed and simply did not have the support or the manpower he needed but thank heavens he got Thomas Paine along, and if it hadn't been for Thomas Paine, this magazine would have folded. So not long after Paine became the editor, the membership of swelled to 1,500 with more to come. You talk about a huge in improvement right there. Did Thomas Paine um, discuss an assortment of topics in the Pennsylvania Magazine? Does anybody want to take a guess at some other topics he might have talked about besides um, political matters? I found one here that Harlow Giles Unger mentioned. He talked about um, a topic um, or a matter known as dueling. Does anybody know what dueling is? Well, dueling, I can tell you this much, uh, dates back to the Middle Ages. When I think of dueling, I tend to think of it as a, a gentleman's uh, way of resolving problems that um, are problems that obviously are not 
overnight matters, conflict that uh, has been brewing for a long time. And for those who engage in dueling, they see violence as a way of resolving the problem. So basically, when one man challenges another man to a duel, they agree to meet somewhere. And they agree to obviously bring their pistol with them. If, you, if both parties showed up, and let's say one or both of the parties decided to um, undo their pistols and drop the bullets to the ground, that meant that today was not their day to fire. What it did mean, though, is that although today wasn't our day, we'll be coming back another time here shortly to get this matter resolved. What would have been the worst thing anybody could have done when it came to not participating in a duel? Not showing up. If you didn't show up, you were frowned upon as being a coward, a wimp, a chicken. I'm sorry to say those words, but that's how people were portrayed who did not show up. Dueling simply was a way of uh, testing um, a man's bravery. Dueling was also as, was seen as a way of seeing whether one had transitioned from from childhood to adulthood. I'd, I'm not sure if that's the right way of, of uh, defining it, but the bottom line is that dueling really was a means of uh, seeing just how, uh, how much of a man one truly was. So the reason why Thomas Paine discussed uh, the dueling, um, the matter about dueling uh, one time in the Pennsylvania Magazine was because, for one, he vehemently spoke out against the practice, considering that in his eyes it was ungentlemanly-like for men to resolve their differences by means of violence. Well, I don't see anything wrong with that, but he decided that he felt that there should be some form of um, legislation uh, to curtail the dueling. He advocated punishments for dueling, such as uh, issuing felonies for those found guilty of hurting an opponent with a sword or a pistol. So, in other words, if John Smith shot Tom Jones, and Tom Jones survived and he was shot in the arm, John Smith should be um, punished for the crime, but that the punishment it's, itself should be one of a felony. But if... But if we want to go above felony, if one um, fatally wounded their opponent, then the punishment should result in um, murder, and that is uh, being found guilty and hung for the crime. So that's just an example right there, folks, of what other um, various topics uh, Thomas Paine liked to discuss that were, um, that were what we call um, non-political uh, but did have some uh, form of political uh, uh, relevance. So it is fair to say that even while Thomas Paine is in a pencil in um, America, Paine never ignored the conflict, that is the existing conflict with Britain, as war itself with the mother country seemed inevitable. He went on to publish another article in 1775. I mean, this man's published countless articles by now in 17 going into 1775, but this article that he publishes in 1775 is titled uh, Thoughts on a Defensive War. In this article, he attacked the Quaker philosophy. The Quaker philosophy revolved around pacifism. Pacifism is a, is a belief where, for the Quaker uh, faith, that all forms of violence, including war itself, are deemed unjustifiable. The Quakers believe that all conflicts, no matter how big or small they are, no matter how severe, 
that they need to be resolved peacefully. Well, on one hand, I think it would be good to resolve as many conflicts as you could peacefully without having to go to war. However, it probably is fair to say that uh, for every four out of five conflicts there might be, you can resolve them without going to war. But who's to say that there will always be that one conflict that can't be resolved peacefully to where it's just a matter of time before shots get fired. And not only do those shots get fired, but they might get fired so loud to where they could be heard around the world. So, for Thomas Paine, he is attacking the Quaker philosophy about pacifism. The Pennsylvania being a Quaker refuge, and it was because it was established by Quakers, you know, a.k.a. William Penn. Paine's article also, in, in this particular article, Thoughts on a Defensive War, assailed the British government of having lost all compassion towards her subjects 3,000 miles across the Atlantic Ocean. Well, think about it. Losing all sense, losing all compassion, that is, you know, think about it. If you're compassion, if you have compassion towards others, are you going to impose uh, measures upon them without their consent? No. Are you going to um, install rulers whom are going to rule upon people in a manner that, well, yes, is unfair, but you have been appointed to be the next ruler in line only to have people below you not vote you in. Isn't that, um, is, doesn't that seem odd? Yes. So the article itself um, drew attention from those who would become curious to those who were enraged. And believe it or not, folks, there would have been many in Philadelphia who would have been enraged by this. Because we have to remember, even in 1775 and prior to, the majority of Pennsylvania is loyalist. The majority of Pennsylvanians, the majority of Pennsylvania's people are loyal to the crown. They don't see any reason for wanting to uh, separate. The majority of Pennsylvania would like to um, come up with some form of resolution that would uh, prevent and avoid the worst-case scenario of uh, going to war, not just going to war, but officially declaring a full separation from England. That's the last thing that the people in Pennsylvania want to do. So it's fair to say that even Thomas Paine himself is in the, um, is in the minority. He's in the um, minority in that, yes, there are people who, um, who are inspired by his works, but there are many who could really care less about him. But the good news is that by 1776, Pennsylvania Magazine had 150,000 readers throughout all 13 colonies. I would say that is very revolutionary upon itself. Had it not been for uh, Robert Aitken taking Thomas Paine in as the editor, this magazine would have floundered. And who knows if there would have been another magazine that could have uh, reached um, the hearts and souls of America's people, not just America's people, but the magazine itself focusing on the works of people in the colonies versus what 3,000 miles away. But for Thomas Paine, hey, there's nothing wrong with having political discussions because after all, in his eyes, it's just a matter of time before the inevitable 
truly does happen, what is that inevitable, folks? The official separation from England. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and um, I'm glad to have been able to have been on the air with you all uh, just before um, to, just before we uh, commence with uh, tomorrow's festivities on Christmas Day. But I hope all of you, uh, wherever you may live in uh, the world, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere, I hope all of you have a good Christmas and uh, stay safe. And when I'm on the air again next, we're going to be discussing about another big work of Thomas Paine's. It might be fair to say that a lot of us already know what what we what might be in store in terms of uh, a major piece of work of his. But we should also remember too that Thomas Paine wrote many um, literary works. He wrote many pieces of works that um, that were inspiring. But when I'm on the air again next, the one that we're going to really talk about is the one that um, is revolutionary onto itself. Thank you for your time as always, and for all of you, uh, have a Merry Christmas, and I hope to be back on the air again before year's end. Take care for now.